0: Second, second Kings 19, beginning in verse 1, we read from God's Word. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah. This day is a day of disgrace, distress, and of rebuke. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God has heard all the words of the Shekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I shall make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Lachish, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Her Hakah, King of Cush, behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, saying, King of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resaph, and the people of Edom who were in Telasar—where Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hena? or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I've gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up the soul with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you shall, should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, with their inhabitants shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown." but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency is coming to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came and they shall be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Mount Zion, out of Jerusalem, shall go a remnant and a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, Adramelech and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped in the land of Arapot. and Esherhidan, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, where we are people in need, in need of food, shelter. We don't see those things every day because we have pantries full, we have houses that we live in, but Lord, those are by your hand. As we see from this passage this morning, everything is by your hand. So would we see our need and find our hope and trust in you. It's In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we often hear competing words in life. You know, before a sporting match, one team might boast of how they're going to win, and then the other team will have other people who boast. Well, they're both boasting, but who is going to win the competition? Or Before elections, the candidates will declare how they will do this, they will do that before they've even been elected. They make great boasts. And this morning we're returning to 2 Kings and we're hearing these conflicting statements about who is going to win this battle in Jerusalem. We see here in the first part of our chapter, chapter 19, that Hezekiah is not going to listen to the words of the rab Shekaah from Assyria. He's going to pray and ask the Lord to bring salvation but then it's going to start all over again there'll be more taunts there'll be more prayers and then lastly we'll see promise and fulfillment but first we see in verses 1 through 7 where Hezekiah prays to the Lord and to understand this we really have to remember what we looked at last time in 2nd Kings 18 where the king of Assyria sent a spokesman the Rabshakeh, who came and he mocked Judah he asks them five challenging questions. First, he asks them, why are you rebelling? On whom are you putting your trust? Do they think words are going to be enough to win? You know, you can have strong words, powerful words, but will words have a toddler be strong enough to defeat a warrior? Second, he challenges you all trusting in Egypt. To do so would be like going down to a riverbank and pulling off a little willow reed. It's not strong enough to support you. If you lean on it, you're going to hurt yourself. It'll poke your hand. Third, he said, Well, perhaps y'all are trusting in the Lord. Well, that's foolish because Hezekiah just got rid of all the high places, all of the places of worship outside of Jerusalem. The Lord is angry with you. And this was a false attack because the Lord actually wanted them to do this, but they did not realize that. But then they went on and they basically mocked Judah. They said, Well, look, we'll make a wager we'll give you 200, 2,000 actually horses if you have enough men to put on them. And they didn't. And then he wraps it up by getting theological again. He said, well, look, what you don't understand is actually the Lord told us to come attack. So we're actually doing God's will. And if you're going to defend Jerusalem, you're fighting against God yourself. And after these five challenges, the ambassadors of Jerusalem asked the Rabshakov from Assyria, would you please stop speaking in Hebrew, would you speak in Aramaic? Because we don't want everyone to hear what you're saying. And then this backfired because the representative of Assyria then spoke directly to the men of the wall in Judah. And he attacked Hezekiah, the king of Judah, four times. First, he said, Look, there's this great king, the king of Assyria. Are you going to trust him or Hezekiah? I mean, what's Hezekiah going to do? Then, he basically said, look, you shouldn't trust Hezekiah, he's spiritually manipulating you. He's saying, oh yeah, Yahweh is going to bring victory, but has any other God been able to stop us? And then third, he says, look, if y'all would all just come down from the wall and make peace now, you can have wonderful land to live in, wonderful things to drink. And then lastly, he pointed out again, look, on what are you trusting? And he names off all these city-states that Assyria had defeated. He said, did their God stop us? Your God can't stop us either. And that leads the background to where we are today. Hezekiah gets this report and he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth, their sign of mourning, and he went to the temple. But notice that Hezekiah did both of these things. He didn't merely put on sackcloth and despair and get depressed and neither did he just say well you know everything's going to go all right god's in control i'm not going to be bothered with this he both put on sackcloth and he went to the temple to pray this is important to realize because sometimes people act as though trusting god means you always go around with a smile on your face well hezekiah is trusting the lord as he is weeping And sometimes we lose sight of God in our despair, and we don't even come to him at all. But Hezekiah is showing us we need both, both weeping and worship, sobbing and supplication. Not only does Hezekiah pray, but we see in 19.2, he sends ambassadors to Isaiah. More than him wanting God to hear his words, he wants to hear from God himself. And Hezekiah doesn't mince any words. He says, look, this is a tragic day. It's like a woman who's going to give birth, and everyone's looking forward to it. And then she gets to the point of the final push, and I don't have any strength. I can't do it. You know, it should be a moment of joy. God coming in and saving them looks like a moment of disaster, where they are going to lose. And so Hezekiah says, God, are you listening? Have you heard these taunts? Will you come? And God speaks back through Isaiah. We see in verses 5 through 6, and he tells him do not fear those are amazing words considering the Assyrian multitude that has surrounded Judah and he continues saying that look I've heard his words reviling me and I will deliver Judah and then he says exactly what will happen he'll hear of a bad report eventually he'll go home and the king of Assyria will then be killed in his own land so we have the words of the messenger from the king of Assyria, we're going to defeat you. And we have the words of the messenger of God, Isaiah, saying they won't even do a single thing. They will go home. Whose word will win? Whom should we trust? And as with most verbal sparring, as one person taunts and the other person says something back, there's another round. They go at it again and we see that in verses 8 through 19 so the Rabshakeh goes back and they've moved cities and then they hear that they're being attacked by the king of cush and the king of assyria doesn't want hezekiah to get the wrong idea hey hezekiah don't be thinking that your god caused this to happen so you'd be free No, no 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 you shouldn't trust in the lord and so he goes into a second round of attacks he points out again look We've destroyed any other land we've come up against. And all these nations, weren't they mightier than you? Is Judah somehow special, do you think, Hezekiah? And after Hezekiah receives this message, he goes to the temple and he lays out this scroll before the Lord. You see, prayer is not something that you do once and then you're over with it. Your prayer is not like a registration form. You fill out the registration form, you send it in, and you're done. Prayer is like breathing. You have a trial in your life, and so you breathe out prayer for strength and endurance. You have a blessing, so you breathe out a prayer of thanks. You have trials and blessings come in, and prayers go out. Thus Hezekiah, though he's prayed about this before, returns and prays again because he is in need of God's help, and he continues to to pray now of course he didn't need to come and roll out the scroll before the lord the lord knows the words on our tongue even before we say them but hezekiah is symbolically showing that lord i'm bringing this all to you and notice the three powerful incredible truths that hezekiah prays in verse 15 he says "O lord the god of israel enthroned above the cherubim you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. The first truth, he declares, is that God is enthroned above the cherubim. If you have read the Bible, you may remember the cherubim. They are first appear in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sin, and God talks to them. He drives them out of the garden, and it says that the God placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So cherubim are warrior angels who protect sinful man from the presence of the holy God. And then when Israel was given instructions how to build the Ark of the Covenant and how to build the temple, God had them put cherubim all throughout, symbolizing this picture that's in tension. On one level, the cherubim are there keeping you away from God's presence. On the other hand, these things, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, they're symbols of you being brought near by the blood of the sacrifice. And so this picture is a tension. One, you can't come near to God because you're sinned, and yet the other is come near by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, yes, God is holy, but he's not remote and uncaring. And God has made a way for his people to be restored and that he cares for them. And so Hezekiah, knowing this, cries out to God in the hour of need. Second, though, in verse 15, he says, God is the one who rules all the kingdoms of the earth. Yes, he is enthroned above the cherubim in the temple, but he is not contained in the temple. He rules over all the earth. He is God alone. Now this is the exact opposite of what the king of Assyria just said. He was just saying, "Well, look, there's gods in Amath and Hana and all these places. Yeah, those gods rule those places. And Yahweh, sure, he rules Jerusalem." And Hezekiah is saying, "No, no, no. God rules everywhere. He's not just the God of Jerusalem. He's the God of the entire earth." Well, why? Well, that's the third thing, because God is the Creator who made heaven and earth. He rules over all the nations and kingdoms because he made them. And since Hezekiah knows the Creator, he doesn't need to fear the creature. This is what the author of Psalm 121 realized. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Since God made everything, We don't need to fear it. We don't need to fear the creatures or the creation. And thus, since Hezekiah knows God created all things, he knows that the taunts and threats from Assyria, though significant, are nothing in comparison to God's words. And his prayer is reminding us that our thoughts of God are vitally important. A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds... When we think about God, is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he, at a given time, may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And Tozer is right. He's not just talking about what we have on a doctrinal statement, but when in our hearts we truly believe about God. And tragically, Americans keep being told the opposite. Rather than seeing the importance and joy of knowing God, beholding God and seeking after God we're given the impression that that's kind of boring you know if we want people to come to church we're gonna have to kind of liven it up a little bit we got to give them something engaging and interesting as though God were not enough worse than that we're told that many people are on a journey they're searching for themselves to find out who they are but the greatest search in life is not in to learn more about myself The greatest search in life is up to know more of God. And here, we're reminded of the vital importance of how we view God. The king of Assyria says, Ah, all the religions, they're basically the same. So another city, who cares? And Hezekiah knows the truth, that God is unique and no one is like him. And so Hezekiah knows this. He's coming and he's praying. And so verse 16, he continues. He asks God, would you stretch out your ears? Would you incline your eyes? Would you hear what's going on? And again, this is language so that we might understand it. Some people call it anthropomorphic. God has no ears. God has no eyes. But he's given us those things so we might know that he sees and hears all. And verse 17 is, I think, very illuminating. Regarding prayer and faith. Notice what he says. Verse 17. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands. In other words, he's not denying reality. You know, sometimes people present faith as a blind leap. As a, well, here, here I'm a person of facts. And you're a person of faith. As though those are somehow in contrast or in opposition to each other. And yet, Hezekiah is looking at the facts. He's looking at the fact that, yeah, Assyria, they've defeated every single nation they've gone against. And yet, there's other facts that have to be considered. That we exist. And so we had to come from something intelligent. We know more facts than that. That Jesus of Nazareth really lived. He claimed to be the Son of God and he died. And to this day, no one can produce his body what do we do with all the facts and the king of judah hezekiah is saying yes there's this fact god there's this fact that the army of assyria is around our city they're bigger than us they're more numerous than us but there's also three other facts you're enthroned above the cherubim you're the only god over all the universe you are the god who created everything and so he looks at the facts And that reminds him, look, yes, these other gods, they've been defeated. But you know what? Those gods were made by men's hands. Those gods had to be made up in men's minds. God is the one who forms hands. God is the one who gives us creativity in our minds. And so Hezekiah wraps up this prayer in verse 19 by asking the Lord to save him. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O God, are Lord alone. So Hezekiah is crying out for his nation. He's trusting in God and he's also caring about God's honor. God is being mocked. What will happen? And God is passionate for his glory. That he not be reviled. And he will give his glory to no other. So we see this passage wrap up with God giving a promise of what will happen and then fulfilling it verses 20 through 37 promise and fulfillment so following hezekiah's prayer god again responds through isaiah the prophet and it begins by referring to judah as a young maiden A young maiden that's being distressed and attacked and to distress and attack the young maiden is ultimately to attack the one who is sent to protect the maiden in this case god himself so assyria is mocking god the holy one of israel not only have they ultimately mocked god but they've arrogantly boasted of their own might you may know these ultimate me monsters all they can ever do is think of their accomplishments the things they have done notice verses 23 and 24 how many times assyria says i I believe it's five times. I have gone up to the heights. I felled its tallest cedars. I entered its farthest lodging place. I dug wells. I dried up with my the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. And as Assyria is boasting, as is often the case, the boaster gets farther and farther from the truth. Because, yes, they did many great things, but historically we know they never were able to conquer Egypt, and they definitely didn't dry up their streams yet we all know boasters no matter what you tell them you've done up nothing you should know what i've done oh you should know all that i can do it's all about them you may have had conversations with people like this you get together and they ask how you're doing and before you get about two sentences out they talk about themselves and after about an hour of you listening to them they go man It's so great to get together and hear how we're both doing. And you're thinking, well, actually, I listened to you for an hour. But hey, okay, I guess this was a great time. It's all about me, me, me. And that's what Assyria is thinking. Look what I did, I did, I did. In contrast to all of the boasting we do, and the Assyrians do, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks, well, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it. Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You know, maybe you've had some great athletic accomplishments in your life. Well, who gave you the muscles and the tendons and the muscle memory to be able to do all that? Well, God. So give thanks to him. Or maybe you've had some great excellence in your work. Maybe you've invented something. You've done some great things that people praise. Well, who gave you the mind to be able to do all that? Well, it was God. So yes, we should work hard, and what we do does matter. Yet ultimately, every single thing we have is a gift from God. And thus, rather than boasting of what we've done or what we can do, we give thanks to God. And yet, when we're boasting, it only leads to our ultimate shame and downfall. You're all familiar with the Titanic. April 1912 goes out on its maiden voyage with cocky confidence the vice president of its company, saying, there's no danger the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. You At that point, the greatest boat that ever been built with the greatest technology so that she would never sink, 16 watertight compartments that could be sealed off by double-cylinder doors if the hole even broke. And this boasting, this confidence, led to their downfall because that day, rather than doing their normal lifeboat drill, they canceled it. When they were radioed, told there's icebergs in the area, the radio operator berated the people calling in saying, Hey, I got personal messages to send out. Don't be send me stuff about icebergs. So when at eleven thirty five they struck the iceberg, their demise began. Their boasting made them think they were invincible. It is a folly to boast of what we have done or will done. We are not God. And all we can say is, if the Lord lives, we will do this or that. Or, because God has given me this, I did this or that. And we notice this strong contrast, because just after Assyria gives their five boasts, I did this, I did this, notice in verses 25 and following, God gives six statements that he did. I determined, I planned, I bring to pass, I know, I will put my hook, I will turn you back. These contrasts saying, look, Assyria, you're going around boasting of all that you can do. I'm the one who's actually going to do everything. First one, it begins by God asking in verse 25, haven't you heard that I determined this long ago? In other words, yes, Assyria, you did conquer all these people, but why? Because I planned it. I am the one who allowed you to do it. They have power as long as God enables them. In, cross, in contrast to them not going, knowing that God allowed them to do this, he knows all about them. He knows the very second they rise up. He knows when they sit down. He knows when they come in. He knows when they go out. He knows when they're raging against him. Therefore, verse 28, he's going to put a hook in their nose. He's going to put a bit in their mouth. In other words, the tools that a farmer would use to control a wild animal are going to be used on Assyria so that they will be forced to go where they don't want to go. In fact, they're going to go back to Assyria the way they came. Thus, in contrast to Assyria's boasting, they're going to be humbled and tamed like a wild beast. God God not only gives these great promises he also gives Israel a sign how do you know this is going to happen well look right now you're wondering are we even going to make it three months do we have enough food to exist well you're going to eat what you have this year next year you'll plant he says in the third year you'll have so much you can feast and plant from it you're often in our anxieties and fears we can't see past the next 15 minutes or the next day but God doesn't see in seconds or days or decades or centuries with the lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day and so he can look in the future and go look you're caught up in this moment but there is more because i am in control and while it may appear that they look doomed they like these plants that are going to grow and flourish so will judah verse 31 promises that they they're not a massive group, they will be a remnant that God preserves. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture: that God has a remnant of people that He keeps. God doesn't promise that every individual Christian will have a better life the next day. They will always be improving. But God does promise in Matthew 16:18: I will build my church, and the gates of hell will shall not prevail against it we read earlier from psalm 2 which began by saying why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings set of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against the anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us and that describes Assyria syria pretty well here they are raging taking counsel boasting we're going to do all this Yet then Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Assyria thinks, no one can stop us. Judah, you're the toddler. We're the warrior. And God says, actually, you're the infant. And I am the warrior. You have no power. You you say, I'm going to come beat you up. And God just laughs. What are you talking about? Get your puny little fist out of my face. <laughs> Done. And that is what we as humans do. We come to God and we shake our puny little fist thinking, oh, we're going to do what we want. And God says, don't you know that I've planned it from all time? Don't you know that I created you? Don't you know all of this? So you could submit and come joyfully or I can put a bit in your mouth and a nose, ring through your nose and lead you where you don't want to go. And so Assyria, they've had power, but it lasted until God said, that's enough. And enough is now, for they will no longer boast. In fact, though they've boasted of all they're going to do, God says, actually, you're going to do four things that you don't want to do, and one that you don't want to do. First, you're not going to set a single foot in the city. In fact, you won't even send one arrow in attack. You won't come forward with one shield. You won't even begin to build a mound of dirt so you can cross over the towers. You will do one thing. You're going to go back the way you came. That's what's going to happen. Well, why does Judah have some secret weapon? They've been having secret councils. They now are going to be able to drop some weapon on Assyria? No. Do they have a great intelligence community that knows a secret plot they can do to kill the king of Assyria? No. It's only because God will save them. That is their hope. And God will do this for his sake and because of his promises he made to David, his servant. And so we read that very night, a hundred and eighty-five thousand soldiers dead. Well who could have foreseen that? Well God. And he did. And so they go home humbled but not humbled enough sadly because the king he then goes home and the passage here kind of telescopes several years you know from history this happened several years later but nonetheless he goes and rather than humbling and saying i should worship yahweh the god of israel he's still in his own temple worshiping mizrak and ironically tragically the god who couldn't protect him can't even protect him in his own temple because he is assassinated By his own sons, and another son comes to power. Sennacherib can mock the God of Israel, but his own God is powerless to do anything. I think this passage is really driving two wonderful truths for us to reflect on. The first is that God has all the power, and second, that God deeply cares for his people. But first, let's note God's power by realizing how we often Misunderstand it. You may often hear people say, I believe in the power of prayer. I don't mean to be controversial, though perhaps a little provocative. I don't believe in the power of prayer. Prayer is what the Assyrians think is the power. Oh, look at all the nations. They have gods. What did that do? Nothing. They think it's all the same is just like any other god. He can't do anything. Let me explain what I mean by using the analogy of an electrical cord. So you have one of those electrical cords. How much power does an electrical cord have? Well, it depends what it's plugged into. But an electrical cord by itself has no power. And you can go to 100 outlets and plug it in to 100 different ones. And if all of them are not connected to the electrical grid, you are getting... No power. But as soon as you plug it into an outlet with power, you got power with the cord. That is what prayer is like. If you go and pray to a hundred false gods, does prayer have power? Not one bit. Because the power is not in prayer. The power is in the object to whom you are praying. And so when you're in need, you don't need positive vibes, no matter how much people like to say that online. You don't need just general prayer. You need the God of the universe who has made himself known through his son Jesus. That's who you need. And the amazing truth is God has given us an electrical cord. He's given us prayer. And so yes, I am not saying don't pray, but I'm saying connect your electrical cord, connect your prayers to the one who has power. I believe in the power of God who works through prayer, not in some generic power of prayer. But second, this passage is showing us God's deep care and concern for his people. Why was Assyria able to conquer all those other lands? They weren't God's covenant people. But listen to these words I read to begin the service. Psalm 46, 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now we often quote that one verse in the middle and we imagine people with a little drink. You can fill it whatever you want. On the beach, Ah, oh, Be still. Know that I am God. Or in the mountains at a cabin, everything serene. But what is Psalm 46.10 talking about? It's that little Judean soldier sitting on the wall, looking out at the army of Assyria and being told, you know what, God, he breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. So I can be here, not on the beach, not in the mountains, but on the wall looking at those troops going, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. And why? Well, because God has made us promises. David is our ancestor. So we can come to God knowing his great and wonderful promises given us in in Christ. Not only when life is going well, but in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the battle, we can be still and know that he is God. When he wants God will one day bring an end to all rebellion. And so each day we place our faith and trust in Him. God cares for His people. The Lord of hosts is with us. Let's go to that God in prayer. O Lord, you.